Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Hey there, Light Bears audience. I'm Stephen Oliver. I'm the campus director for Light Bears Ministries at Oklahoma State University. And today we've got Andrew Brill. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, yeah, I think he's been on one or two of our podcasts. The so annoying far, voice right? on your podcast. Yeah, look, look at him just interrupting me as I'm trying to do an intro. Anyway, <laughs> we've got Andrew Brill, the executive director of discipleship for Light Bears here. And today we're going to be talking through the book of Luke, right? And so we've already done our last two podcasts, Mark and Matthew. Uh, and so today we're doing Luke, so I'm excited to hear what Andrew's got to say about what makes this gospel uh, different, even though it's one of our synoptic gospels, right? So, Andrew, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. First question, Andrew, just who was Luke, right? What, what makes him a credible person to write a book of the Bible? The book of Luke, like all the Gospels, is technically anonymous. Uh, we don't have a signed copy of any of these books, uh, and so we're going to early church fathers and um, various sources to figure out who who wrote them as best as we can tell. The The way that we uh, have a pretty good guess on Luke, I mean, number one, the, the early church said that there was this guy named Luke who, who wrote these books. But, but and just in, to be clear, those guys, those early church fathers, a lot of these guys were discipled by people who walked with Jesus. Yes. So they, yeah. their their opinion holds a lot of weight. Right. We're not just saying some early pope in 300 BC said right. this. I mean, right, these are right, guys right. with yeah. a lot of yeah. Hey, weight. Apostle yeah. John disciple this guy. Right. Then yeah. Right. That's Big deal. Thing. Okay. Um, and so basically, what we can do is we can say, okay, the, the early church said Luke, but but specifically from a literary perspective, and I'm going to nerd out from a literary perspective on a lot of this today. So so buckle up, guys. Um, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are clearly tied together. Uh, Luke starts with an opening that says, I've written this for you, Theophilus. So he's written, writing to somebody named Theophilus. The book of Acts is going to start and say, uh, in my earlier book, Theophilus, and kind of go forward from there. And so we know that Luke and Acts were written as, you know, essentially a, a first and second parts of, of, of one continuing story, which is significant that we'll get into this in Acts, but that the church is the continuing story of the work of Jesus. But what we do is we say, okay, whoever wrote Acts wrote Luke, and we have a pretty good guess on who wrote Acts because uh, whoever wrote Acts was a companion of Paul because he writes in the in the we form, uh, using the we pronoun, especially uh, later in the book. Uh, and so then we look at um, who are some of the companions of Paul, and, and throughout the letters of Paul, some are written, and one of these companions is a guy named uh, is a guy named Luke. So Colossians 4, 14 mentions Luke is a companion of Paul. And, and you kind of look at what we know of who wrote Acts and Luke, and we say, well, it's a companion of Paul. It's somebody who was clearly well-educated because of the level of Greek that he wrote. And, you know, it narrows it down, just to be honest. It narrows it down to not very many people. Luke, who uh, who was a physician, is within that Within that group, he was a he was a Gentile, which is significant in Luke. Um, he was well educated, and he was a companion of Paul. Uh, so it's a small group, and then the early church consistently said it was Luke, and so we go with that. Do we know with one hundred percent certainty? No, but there's never really been question about it. Right, and if the early church was going to make up authorship, they probably would have given it to a more uh, notorious. Yeah, disciple, they would have right? said. Yeah, I, I mean. James, the son of Alphaeus, where's his, you know, where's his right. gospel? We don't have it. Well, 
he apparently didn't write one, but yeah, they the early church would have done that. It's a good point. Right. Yep. So there's no no reason to lie about that. So I think we can trust our early church fathers on everything. <laughs> uh, Steve and I are joking about this because if you listen to the early podcast, we get into Mark and Matthew and which one was written first. So if you want to nerd out on that, go back and listen to the last podcast. Okay. So we've got an idea who Luke is, um, a little bit of why he's writing. Apparently there's this guy at Theophilus, right, that he is writing this to. But why why the book of Luke? Like what's, what's the point of Luke when we already have probably Mark and Matthew at this point? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good question. You know, why, why do we need multiple, uh, multiple gospels? Um, and, and one of the terms that is used about Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular is called the synoptic gospel. So synoptic is a word that means seeing together. So they are three different sources seeing the same thing. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's significant to, to look at that and say, really, it's a gift to have three different gospels and four, if you include John, but John, um, John's more of an interpretive gospel, whereas, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more descriptive. Uh, but it's, it's really a gift to have these four because, um, we get different insights, uh, into the person and work of Jesus. And, you know, why, why wouldn't we want that? Um, we want, you know, Ephesians talks about the unfathomable riches of, of Christ. Well, unfathomable, it, we can't get to the bottom of it. The, we can't do that. And so let's look at, let's let's turn this diamond from another angle and see the beauty of it in a new way. And so the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all describing Jesus, they're all doing it from their God-given personalities and perspectives. And, and really, want, we want to look at this and say, the Holy Spirit was working through each of these men for our good. I mean, Romans 15 says, um, scriptures are written for our benefit, uh, that we might have perseverance, that we might have hope. And that's talking about the Old Testament, but I think it's true for all of Scripture to say, why? what's the good of these Scriptures? It's for our benefit. We get to know more of Jesus, and that's a really good thing. And so even in the midst of this, as I talk about Luke and what he's passionate about and what he, what he writes about, well, I think we have to keep the perspective that it's the Holy Spirit who is inspiring this. And so, yes, he's going to work through Luke's personality and through his passions and through what he heard of from Paul and the, all of those sorts of things. And yet it's the Holy Spirit who is the one, uh, who's the one doing this work. So yeah, it doesn't make it any less inspired, right? It's just like you mentioned, it's kind of viewing it through a different face yeah. on the diamond, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that face of the diamond we're viewing through. Like what's, what's unique to Luke? Like what, what perspective are we seeing through Luke? You mentioned he's a Gentile, right? We yep. don't, we don't have that with Matthew and Mark. Um, you know, I mentioned synoptic gospels, uh, basically about 60% of Mark uh, is in Luke, uh, and then there's a there's a lot that is also in Luke and in Matthew. So if that makes sense, about 60% of, of Luke is made up by Mark. Let me put it that way. 60% of Luke is made up by Mark um, or is, is common material. And then there's another section of material that's in Matthew and Luke, things like the Sermon on the Mount. It's not in, it's not in Mark. It's in Matthew. It's in Luke. It takes different forms in the two but um, the, the content is still there. And so a lot of people think that there is an earlier source. Some the scholars will call it the Q source if you want to nerd out on that. But there's a, there's a common source that Matthew and Luke, maybe it's an oral tradition that Matthew and Luke are, 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 um, are utilizing. That said, um, it's interesting that in the material that they share, Luke's going to have a slightly different emphasis. Um, and then he's also going to share some of some stories that aren't anywhere else. So, for example, the Good Samaritan, it's only in Luke. So that's a story that Jesus told that Luke felt had prominence and needed to be 
in the Gospel of Luke. The parable of what's called the prodigal son really should be the two lost sons. Um, that shows up only in Luke. Um, but you also have moments like the Garden of Gethsemane, which all three Matthew, Mark, Luke write about. And yet in Luke, Luke has writes the same story, but writes it with an emphasis on the prayer of Jesus rather than on the failure of the disciples. Both are true, but what Luke is doing is Luke saying, I'm going to use the same story, and I'm going to emphasize something else that the Lord was doing in it. So um, so it's really neat how he does a lot of those things. Um, as far as how it was written, his style, uh, it was written to Gentiles, uh, whereas Matthew, we talked about, was written uh, clearly to Hebrews. Luke was written to Gentiles. Again, Hebrews is going to read it, but but primarily it's written to Gentiles. Um, and and it is, it's written in really excellent Greek. Some people have said it's the best written from a literary perspective in the New Testament. So it's, and, and I think that's part of why it reads easily for our ears in 21st century uh, Western culture, because uh, it's it, it contains things that we're used to. And so there's really human characters. You know, you have people like Zacchaeus that don't show up in Matthew and Mark, and we just kind of, we, we get them. They make sense to us. There's the thief on the cross. There's uh, Mary. We get way more about Mary, the mother of Jesus, than we do in the other Gospels. And so in these moments, Luke does a, Luke really emphasizes the individual and, and, and really enjoys focusing us there. He's also going to use language like grace and forgiveness, which, again, make a lot of sense to our Western ears because it really resonates with a lot of what Paul is talking about later um, in his letters, which, again, makes sense. Luke, uh, Luke knew and worked with Paul. So again, the message is entirely consistent with the other Gospels, with Matthew and Mark. In every one of them, Jesus, uh, Jesus rose from, in a sense, nothing to become a well-known teacher and healer and discipler. But then at some point, the praise of men, the popularity he gained, turns to cursing. Uh, they become angry. Um, part of that is tied to the, the teaching. The teaching isn't just some feel-good come on and, and I'll make your life easy. I mean, there's hard teaching that it's kind of you're in or you're out um, at times. In every one of the Gospels, that's the case. In every one of the Gospels, eventually the crowds turn on him, turn him over to the authorities, the authorities crucify him, and he rises again. So the the overarching arc of the story is exactly the same. The, the stories match up from Gospel to Gospel, and yet through the goodness of the Holy Spirit, Luke's going to emphasize some certain things that Jesus himself is passionate about so that we get to see them. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed reading through the book of Luke is he seems to put more of an emphasis on um, financial matters, right? Uh, which is interesting because Matthew was the tax collector, right? right? And Matthew does mention a lot of financial parables and riches and wealth and poorness and all that. But Luke, he kind of takes it to another level. Luke seems to find a way to work something that has to do with being rich or poor into a lot of the parables, a lot of Jesus's teachings. For example, I mean, just one of the most blatant examples is in Matthew's gospel, the first beatitude are blessed are the poor in spirit, right? But when Luke records um, Sermon on the Mount, which in his version is Sermon on the Plain, which you can argue are those two different sermons, are they the same sermon? I believe they're the same, um, just different location on the mountain. But um, Luke says, blessed are the poor. Maybe the plane landed on top of the mountain. Is that kind of what you're thinking? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, other kind of plane people. Yeah, yeah. A-I-N. Yeah. Well, so Luke's gospel records they came down from the mountain and settled in on a plane. So, or they, they came down and settled on the plane. So I believe that you can be on a plane and on a mountain at the same time, right? Um, so, but that aside, Luke says, blessed are the poor. 
Um, yeah, he leaves off in spirit. In spirit, yeah. yeah. It doesn't seem to be, and we talk about looking at it through different faces of the diamond, right? And I think this might be an example of that. Uh, but that is, that's saturated throughout Luke's gospel, this idea. He used, I mean, there's multiple parables he uses um, that involve um, riches and wealth and, and, and poverty and, and what that looks like that Matthew doesn't use. And so uh, what is your take on that? Like, what is... What is Luke communicating there? Like in the like in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, like Luke makes two clear distinctions about Lazarus and the and this rich man who passes him every day, right? That there's a guy who's wealthy and then there's a guy who's poor. And then it it kind of just leads you to believe that the the poor guy's in heaven almost because he's poor, right? And the rich man is in hell or Hades um almost just because he's rich, right? Now but and I'm I'm being very surface level yeah, with yeah, this, yeah. but it's another example of how Luke is differentiating a distinctive between poverty and wealth, and and what that means in terms of the kingdom and the gospel, um, who's in, who's out, and all that. What what is your take on that? What is Luke yeah. trying to communicate? Um, it's clearly an emphasis. Everybody um, who studies Luke points this out that um, you know it is as it is as if Jesus has a preference for the poor. And I think you make a good point of saying, "Hey, we could we could dive into one of these scenes and and blow it out of proportion in terms of okay, is he saved for his because he's poor, whereas the other person goes to hell because of his riches?" Well, we know not that's not the case because of the the full canon of scripture. That's clearly not the wealth that sends them um, to punishment to to hell in that sense, um, but. There's a preference for the poor that it seems as if Jesus has. And the way that I would I would speak to that is I would even broaden it beyond the poor, and I would say that in Luke we see Jesus' good, kind care for those who are cast out, uh, for the outcast. And so the poor are one big example of that, um, but it's not just the poor. I mean, women play a predominant role in Luke that they don't in the other Gospels, they don't have as much authority or power in first century Judaism. Jesus pays attention and values them. Um, children, um, I, I think a huge section that we in the West ignore a lot, there's a chapter, Luke 14, where Jesus says, um, when you throw a party, don't throw it for your friends. They can repay you. Throw it for people who can't repay you. Invite the poor, the lame, the disabled, When's the last time you had a party like that? We just don't know what to do with stuff like that. Um, the amount of work that Jesus does with um, those who are cast out is unbelievable. And my goodness, the goodness of God in that. I mean, uh, sometimes in the West we forget how hard, how much suffering there is in the world. But how many millions of followers of Jesus have been war-torn refugees or poor over the years, over the centuries, they need to know that their God is not just one who takes care of them when they're comfortable, but they have a Savior who says the kingdom isn't just for those who are doing well. The kingdom is for those that life doesn't work for. That's the message we need. We need to hear that Jesus came for those that life doesn't work for. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that Hey, poor equals blessing. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. What I would say is, Jesus doesn't um, ignore the poor because they're poor. He actually draws near to them, and there is blessing 
in that, that they are not cut off because of their because of their poverty. It's more so about money itself and the danger of money and how to use wealth. I mean, I could, I could, I could ramble on this for a while, but there's this section where the rich young ruler comes. Rich young ruler shows up and says, you know, what does it take to get eternal life? And, uh, and, and Jesus says, you know, you follow all the commandments now, sell everything you have and come follow me. And he, and he says he can't do it. Well, a few verses later, Zacchaeus shows up and Zacchaeus um, talks to Jesus and then says, I'm going to give away half of what I own. And Jesus says, salvation's come to this house. And you're kind of like, wait a minute. Yeah, he only had to give half. Yeah, why did like, he only have to, have to give half? Fair. And right. I think kind of the point is, had Jesus told the rich young ruler to give away half, he probably wouldn't have done it. And had he told Zacchaeus to do all of it, to give away all of it, Zacchaeus would have done it. So the money is simply a reflection of the heart. It's not the money in and of itself. And I think that's really what... There, so there's kind of two issues. One is Jesus draws near to the poor, and the second is the danger of riches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That totally makes sense. Tell us a little bit, um, real quick, because we we could spend a ten part series podcast on Luke's view of riches and right. you know poverty and wealth right. and all that. But um, tell us a little bit about the structure of Luke. Like, what's take us from front to back? Give us a quick outline. Like, what is how is Luke portraying this gospel, and how is he setting it up? And yeah. what would you call like kind of this big pivotal moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, I can do it real, and you know, I can do this one shorter than I can most books of the Bible. There's good, your one, audience will appreciate that. Right, there's so. one verse. <laughs> uh, so 9, verse 51, uh, most people will point to, and, and I would agree with it. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a, that's a hanging clause from a, from a literary perspective. But what's happening there is everything that has become before this is his ministry in Galilee. Okay, so you have his, you have his birth, you have his um, you know, early ministry when he's 12. We have that moment. Uh, I shouldn't say ministry, but the moment when he's 12. And then his early ministry in Galilee, Sermon on the Plain, all those sorts of things. Then we get here to 951. And a lot's happened so far. I mean, transfiguration, feeding of the 5,000, those sorts of things. But here it says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And, and in the Greek, the, 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 the language there actually is he set his face. And so you have this image of, and it says when, it, when, it, when his time, when the days were approaching for his ascension. So it's clearly that Jesus has in his mind a, okay, it's time. I've been doing this ministry out in Galilee, but now it's time for me to go to Jerusalem. And so I'm going to set my face towards Jerusalem. I'm determined. And I think it's important to think of Jesus that way. It's not that he was just a, uh, stuff happened to him. No, he was determined. I mean, this, he was determined, knowing he was going to die, that's what he's doing here. I'm determining to go to Jerusalem. And so really from nine until 19, it's essentially a journey to Jerusalem. Um, And there's lots of ministry that happens along the way and teaching and those sorts of things. Uh, And then 19 through 20. Two, uh, really 21, 19, 20, 21 is his, is his last week, uh, uh, the Passion Week. 22 is the crucifixion, 23 and 24 are resurrection. So you can kind of break it up into those categories of ministry in Galilee, ministry on the way to Jerusalem, Passion Week, and resurrection. Yeah, yeah, that's good, man. All right, so let's, Andrew, let's talk about a little bit about that first section you mentioned, right? And this is, um, this is before Jesus's ministry is really even getting started, right? And so, and that that kind of picks up in chapter four. It's kind of a key moment early on. Uh, we've got the the temptation of Jesus. Like, tell us a little more, set the scene for us there, and how this how this really takes off and gets started. Yeah, this is one that that I think uh, we skip over a lot. Um, you know, it's not the parable of the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. It's not the feeding of the 5,000. This is, 
I've never seen this in a children's Bible. Let me put it that way. And I got a lot of children's Bibles in my houses. Uh, houses, house, singular. Houses. Yeah. My summer home in the Caymans. And you're making a lot either. of money doing podcasts, um, guys. So uh, anyways, so this is, not, this is not one of those well-known moments. And yet I think from a literary perspective, this one is huge. Each of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think each of them has what scholars have called a, a programmatic passage. So this is a passage that is early in the gospel, and it really sets up the themes that the rest of the gospel is going to lay out. Uh, and so for Mark... It's the it's in Mark four the the parable of the sower. So it's this moment of okay here's a teaching. It's talking about how people respond to the message of Jesus. The rest of Mark's going to play that out. In Matthew, scholars would say it's the Sermon on the Mount. It's this teaching early on that kind of sets out that Jesus is about the heart and not about actions, and and that he is the authority um, to speak in this way. Okay. Now, in Luke, we have this passage in Luke chapter 4, uh, and it is, it is a moment where Jesus is back in Nazareth. And so, just to set the scene a little bit, so far, uh, we've had a little over three chapters, and so far Jesus has said exactly four sentences in the gospel. So we've heard a lot about Jesus, but we haven't actually heard from him. He said four sentences. One of them was to his parents uh, as a 12-year-old. Three of them were... Uh, to Satan, actually, in in temptation. So he has not spoken at all to crowds. He hasn't proclaimed himself. In a sense, you know, we don't really know who he is at this point in Luke. Uh, And it says, and Luke 4.14 says, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Okay, so we know he has the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So you know that he has the Spirit and you know that he's getting public acclaim. So the the question is, what's he going to do with that? What, what does this man who has the power of the Spirit, and we know he was conceived by the Holy Spirit at this point, um, obviously from Luke 1 and 2. So, so we know, you know, we as the readers know he's the Son of God. The people living this out, they didn't know that. They know he has power and he's teaching. Okay, let's go hear him. And so it says that he came to Nazareth. And remember, Nazareth, it says, is, is where he had been brought up. So he's going back to his hometown. So that's the scene. He's, he's in his hometown, and he goes to synagogue. So it's kind of local boy makes it big. Okay? So imagine the, the high school athlete who makes it to the pros and then comes back you know, to play a benefit game at the high school or the, you know, the, the poet who makes it huge and then comes back to write a poem for the dedication of the new city hall. I mean, it's, it's local boy makes it big. That's, that's the moment here. And he comes back um, and it says that he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And that, that was a standard practice that someone would, would be in the synagogue and they would stand up and read and then they would sit down and teach. Okay. So he stands up, it says, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is in Isaiah 61. Uh, and, and it says he opened the book. These are scrolls that he's reading from. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's a moment in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where Isaiah is prophesying about coming out of Babylonian captivity. Okay, he sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then it says in Luke 4.20, it says, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And I love just how that is drawn out. We don't even need to know that he closed the book. We don't need to know that he gave it back to the attendant. It doesn't really matter. And yet, the drama of the moment there is so huge. You have this guy praised by all. He stands up, he reads this, and then Luke slows way down, closes the book, 
gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. It says, and the eyes of all in this synagogue were fixed on him. Everybody's quiet. Everybody's, I mean, I don't know that everybody's quiet. Okay, I got little kids in church. I know what this is like, okay? But the eyes of all are fixed on him. And it says, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, imagine the absolute huge implications of this statement. That's a bold claim. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable. He says, Isaiah 61, a prophecy of the Messiah, is fulfilled right now. I mean, he's saying he's the Messiah right there. I am the king, the anointed one of God. That's what he's saying. And he says it so clearly. And in that moment, I think this is how we have to understand Luke, is he defined, Jesus defines himself by this passage in Isaiah 61. So what does Jesus do? Well, what does Isaiah 61 says the Messiah is going to do? He's going to preach the gospel to the poor. Does Jesus do that in Luke? Definitely. We already talked about that. Yeah. Okay. Does he proclaim release to the captives? Yes. Does he re- recover his sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed? Those are, that's language of being set free, that, and Luke will use language of salvation. Set free, salvation, made well. These are all parallel terms here. And so what Jesus is doing, and Luke is going to use language of salvation, just specifically that word, more than Matthew or Mark is, because this is, this is just this passion that Jesus has that... Luke, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is, is, um, is sharing. And then he closes and he says, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And that's a really interesting one because Jesus is actually cutting off in the middle of Isaiah 61, verse 2. The second half of that verse says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Jesus doesn't include that here. Hmm. And it's really, really fascinating because, think about this, from an Israelite perspective, you hear the Messiah come, what do you think? And you're thinking, victory over enemies. Well, what is Jesus saying? Jesus says, I'm giving favor, but I'm actually not bringing the vengeance yet. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so for Luke, a huge piece of Luke is that Luke is focused on the message of Jesus is for all. It's for all nations. It's for Gentiles. And so Jesus has come to proclaim favor, but he's also come to proclaim it for the Gentiles. And this is kind of... This is kind of the rub for the for the listeners here, because then what Jesus is going to do is he's he starts saying... I mean, I'm skipping down a few verses here, but he basically says, you know, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, but Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. So he start, he gives two examples, that one and then Naaman, which is a story from 2 Kings, where um, God heals a Syrian. And so in both cases, Jesus gives the examples. He says, God reached outside of Israel to Gentiles. And so that is how he's defining his mission, is proclaiming the gospel to the poor, setting free captives, think salvation, and proclaiming God's favor to the world, not simply to the Jews. That's why I think Luke 4 is so is so big. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great. Um, it's awesome to see, because we, we did talk about just a few minutes ago, like the idea of Luke's, Luke and how he views riches and poor. Well, that's, that wasn't his idea. I mean, Luke is not someone who, right. um, you know, hates the prosperity gospel, so he's writing a narrative that just completely destroys it. No, he's actually saying, no, I'm writing my gospel based on what Jesus said and right. did. Right. So um, I think we can read that and take comfort in that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I also talked about the poor being outsiders in a sense. Sure, well, yeah. Gentiles are also outsiders, and yeah. so it's consistent with this. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. He's not only a Savior of the rule followers, the Jews, the rich, whatever the case may be, he is the one who offers salvation to all. It's why people like the Good Samaritans show up and Zacchaeus show up and Joseph of 
Arimathea, people who you might think would be on the outside, they show up prominently in Luke. Yeah. How do we see that? I mean, you mentioned the Samaritans and just the outsiders, but how, like specifically, what is Luke saying in his gospel? Like as a Gentile writing, other than just like the oppressed, like how is he, does he, does he mention like the nations? Is he talking about like other people outside of Israel coming to Jesus? What, I mean, yeah, there's moments. That, and, and again, part of this is you have to understand in the context of Acts, Luke is writing a two-part story here. And so in the two-part story, what happens in Acts well, the gospel reaches the nations. That's yeah. what Paul does. Um, and so part of it is G, uh, Luke wants to make sure that everyone knows that Paul didn't just make up this, I'm going to the nations piece. That this wasn't just Paul, you know, getting on a power trip and saying, hey, I need to, I need to get to Rome. And, and yeah. you know, he's saying Jesus all along was about reaching those on the outside in the nations. And so, again, Good Samaritan is a great example. It doesn't show up in the other gospels. Luke Luke draws it out. Um, he makes the hero of the story one who is outside, in a sense, of the people of God. Um, then you also have um, you also have. There's a specific moment in chapter 13, 13, 29, where it says many will come from all nations. Um, a lot of people point at the genealogy. So Matthew's genealogy starts. We talked about this in the Matthew podcast. Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham. Where does Luke's po- Luke's podcast? That would be great. I'd listen <laughs> be, to that one. Yeah, all that would day be long. that'd be pretty awesome. Except we have covered a Luke we'd podcast. We'd have to. We'd have to get get it translated. Um, but <laughs> but it'd be easy because his Greek was excellent. Yeah, Kali, that guy. Um, so Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam. So he goes back yeah. and says, hey, we're all point. descended from Adam. Um, and again, that's not that he's disagreeing with Matthew. It's just that he's got a different point that he's trying to make. And so I think that's, you know, in, in this moment in Luke 4, I mean, Matthew and Mark's version of this story in Nazareth is just a couple of verses. Well, Luke Luke says, hey, I'm going to tell you kind of the whole thing that Jesus said, because what Jesus was doing was he was giving two examples from the Old Testament of how God reached out to those who were outside, to Gentiles. And so I think that's that's kind of what you want to get to, is you want to say, all right, this theme of reaching the outsiders and reaching Gentiles is all the way through. And, you know, some of that stuff's going to show up in Acts as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love all the different, like, special um, features of Luke's narrative. I, mean, I love that. And one of those that I've noticed, and you mentioned a little bit part two, which is Acts. Um, we look, Sometimes we look at the book of Acts and we say, oh, here's part two. Like Jesus did the first part, part one, the book of Luke. And then it, and then Paul and Peter are really the stars of Acts part two, right? And that's, that's really the wrong way to look at it. The star of part two is still Jesus. We see this Holy Spirit working in Acts two, but Luke is also... Um, unique in a sense that it talks about the Holy Spirit more so than the other Gospels. So talk a little bit about that and what makes that unique in the book of Luke. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mentioned that, I read that verse in Luke 4 where it says that he came down in the power of the Spirit. Um, I think part of it is, I mean, just statistically, the Holy Spirit is mentioned more in Luke than in Matthew and Mark combined. So just, you know, just by looking at stats, it's clearly an emphasis for Luke. The most you know, the number one spot you're going to look at is you're going to look at Luke 1 and 2. Um, in the nativity narrative, um, you know, and, and again, you think through the Old Testament lens where the Holy Spirit shows up here or there, he comes on Saul and then leaves. And so, that you know, the Holy Spirit is, is present in the Old Testament, hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, and yet not. Then you get to Luke, and the Holy Spirit is everywhere. Jesus shows up, and the Holy Spirit is all in the pages. And so, you know, Mary, 
you're going to be, you know, how's this going to happen to me? Well, the power of the Most High will come on you, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, okay? And then, what does it say about John the Baptist, his cousin? It says that the Holy Spirit will be present in him from birth. And then later, it's going to talk about Simeon and Anna, these figures in the temple, and it says that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. I mean, over and over and over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit is present. Number one, I think it's significant to say Jesus is clearly unlike anyone who has ever lived before because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And second, when we get to Acts, we can say, well, the Holy Spirit has since been a unifying presence in Luke and Acts, and so we can draw comfort that the Holy Spirit in empowering the church is continuing the work of Jesus because the Holy Spirit also empowered the work of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's awesome. Um, so we, we've kind of dove deep into a couple specific topics, riches and wealth, the Holy Spirit. Um, how would you just kind of overall summarize the book? Like any any concluding thoughts that you just think, man, as I went through this book, um, I just cannot help but be overwhelmed with this idea or, or that this is taking place. And um, I know a lot of the students we work with in Stillwater, they want this application yeah. part of it too, right? So if you're talking to my students in Stillwater, like, man, what, what do we take away from Luke? And how does that apply in our lives today? Like, what, what about this book written 2,000 years ago? Yeah. Um, you know, why, why is that important for me today? Yeah, you know, I mean, in a sense, a, a subtitle for Luke would just be, you know, the Savior of all mankind. I mean, so so how would I summarize it? I'd say, in Luke, Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. So then you start saying, okay, what are the implications of that? If Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, well, number one, it says that I need to encounter this Jesus and to be set free, made well. I mean, there, there's even a moment, there's, there's a moment in Luke 8 and Luke 9, there's two different healings. And sometimes it's translated your faith has made you well, and sometimes it's translated your faith has saved you. It's the same thing. And I think it gives a just a really cool picture of what is salvation. Salvation is being made well. You, student, you are broken. You know that at your core. I know it at my core. I'm broken. I need to be made well. And so what does it mean for Jesus to be a savior of all mankind? It means that he offers to make me well in every way, okay? Then there's the piece of Savior of all mankind, which means that there is no one outside of the scope of Jesus's mission. And I think um, so often we surround ourselves with people who look like us, who think like us. Well, I think one of the challenges is to say, who are those that seem outside? And outside, I mean, I leave that purposefully a little vague because that, that might look different for different people. Um, you know, I have... I believe really, really strongly that and uh, that Jesus is passionate for uh, people who struggle with disability. That that those, I mean, statistically, they are outside of the church and they struggle with, um, I mean, suicide and depression in, in wildly higher numbers than the than the population at large. Well, they are outside, and the church has historically not done a great job um, of reaching out and sharing the gospel and caring for those people. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. We as individuals should say, who are those who are outside, and we should be going to them to continue the, the work of, of what Jesus has done. So that's a couple of thoughts. Yeah, yeah, that's good. The, the motivation is always Christ, right. and, and we respond out of what he's done for us. Well, uh, thank you for taking time to be with us today, Andrew. Um, if you have more questions about Luke, um, I first just um, invite you to open the book and read um, front to back and just get an idea. Like like we mentioned a little bit, the, the danger with Luke is you can just pick and pull certain parts and focus on certain ideas like social justice or or poverty or, or wealth and um, and all those things. But when you when you open up the book of Luke and you read it for it in its full context, you get a really 
really cool picture of Christ that I think, though is similar to the other synoptic gospels, it is also unique and stands on its own. Kind of that other face of the diamond we talked about. So, Andrew, thank you. Yep. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, Stephen. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Mm-hmm.